0: Welcome to another episode of the Svarim Chatter Podcast, and I'm Nahi Weinstein. This week, we take a short break from the Ten Lost Tribe series, which will return next week. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Mosaica Press. Check out their many new titles, including Halacha Matters by Rabbi Tzvi Nachman, which presents true-to-life, modern-day halachic dilemmas that are as relevant as they are entertaining. For each example, a halachic analysis follows, continuing with a conclusion, and further questions that provide an ideal springboard for meaningful conversation, ideal for the Shabbos table or classroom discussion. Get your copy now at Mosaicapress.com and use the code CHATTER, C-H-A-T-T-E-R, for an exclusive 15% off. And you can also get a copy in your local Judaica store. To sponsor an episode or support the podcast, please email me at sfarmchatter at gmail.com or see the links and information in the show's notes. Additionally, please check out the brand new Farm Chatter YouTube channel. There is now a teaser video up and there will be a video tour of part of my library, which will be going up tonight, February 18th, the day this is airing. Please subscribe and share the YouTube channel. And if you have more ideas of what you would like to see in the video format, please comment on YouTube or email me. Also, there's the Farm Chatter Substack. You can find the link to that in the show's notes as well, and you can please please subscribe. For those that aren't familiar, that's like a blog, and it gets emailed to you. Also, there's a link in the show's notes for the Farm Chatter WhatsApp community, where there is uh, an admin only chat where I post new books, farm, and other information. And there is also A podcast discussion related chat And finally, please subscribe, rate and review the podcast Especially on Apple And um, enjoy this episode And check out the link in the show's notes To purchase the book discussed uh, on the episode Hi everyone Welcome to another edition of the Svarm Chatter Podcast On this episode of the podcast I'm going to be joined by Michal Rottenveld Who is the Associate Director of Turo University Libraries And he is the editor and translator of the new volume one of the uh, The Shaychet, A Memoir of Jewish Life in Ukraine and Crimea by Pinchas Dov Goldenstein. And this is translated from the Yiddish with, you know, as I said, he's an editor, but there's a lengthy we had a 150 plus page introduction in here as well. Maybe it's a little less, but it's a, a very large introduction, less than that, le- very large introduction with extensive notes. And again, this is volume one, with volume two is forthcoming. So we'll be discussing the autobiography, which is fascinating, full of really vivid, descriptive detail of the life of uh, this Pinchas of Goldenstein. So thank you, uh, Reverend Rottenfeld, for joining me. Now... Let's start off. Tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background.
1: i learned in Lubavitcher Yeshivas in Kvarchabad in Morristown, New Jersey, and I have a master's degree of, in information library science. I'm the associate director, at, as you mentioned, I'm the associate director of libraries at Tour University.
0: So... This is an interesting thing. It's an autobiography of. It's called the Sheikhit because he was a Sheikhet, as we'll get to. And this is really his life in the you know late you know this is, we're about the latter part of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century um, of someone. This volume covers his life in Ukraine and he travels to Crimea and then he's going to go to Israel and that's going to be volume two. This is just the first part. But how did you get to this book? It was written in Yiddish. this autobiography. How did you get here and this whole project come to be?
1: Okay, I've been interested in Jewish autobiography for years and years. I'm particularly fond of autobiographies written in Yiddish, the language in which the events originally occurred. So keep in mind, though, that in the 1920s and 30s in America, Yiddish was the Jewish publishing language. Hundreds and hundreds of books were published each year. At that time, it was even difficult... To sell Jewish books in America, which weren't printed in Yiddish, such as Hebrew or English. So, how did I come to this book, Pinchizut Dov Goldensteins, Zichrenes? So, when I was learning in Yeshiva in Abad, I wanted to, I was there in 1988. I wanted to know more about a certain historical matter. So I asked around, and I was told I should contact Yeshua Manshian, Olave Shalom. He is this brilliant Hasidic researcher. So I called him up in Yissholaim, and I asked him my question. And he told me he had just written a chapter about the very subject I was looking into in Kerem Chabad, which was a three-volume work. So I bought that; it was printed in Kerem Chabad, and I noticed an article about Pinchas Dov Goldenstein's autobiography. First of all, I just want to mention one thing that those names, Pinchas Dov, he was called Pinya Ber. Pinya is a nickname for Pinchas and Ber is a nickname for Dov. They both mean bear. In, in Europe, the names Dov, Tzvi and Zev were not used on a daily basis. They were only used for religious purpose, something like that. But on a day-to-day basis, the Yiddish equivalents were used. So I always referred to him as Pinyabek. In any case, so I read this article, and which summarized the book and brought out the points he was particularly interested. Anyway, it then took me another few years before I was able to lay my hands on the original copy. And I saw right away it was very different from the others that I had read.
0: What made it different specifically? Well, first of all, most
1: 19th century autobiographies, Jewish autobiographies, are written by Maskilim. They're not from. They, in fact, their whole story is about how they grew up in the in the darkness of Yiddishkeit, so to speak, and the horrible cheder, and you know, broke away, saw the light, the light of the skole. and uh, and his. You know there are some from autobiographies, but they're certainly not as captivating. This and certainly they he describes whenever Pinyaber, this Goldenstein, whenever he describes anything, he describes in great detail, great granular details. So you really get a feeling for daily life. So when Arav writes about his life, he you learn about his. His is his accomplishments, but you don't learn about daily life. But with Pinyabar, you really learned how people lived.
0: Yeah, and as I mentioned in the beginning, it's very graphic, really, in a good way. It really is descriptive. He had a real talent for that. It's, you know, it's you titled it the Shaykhit, and he was a Shaykhit, but it's almost the storyteller because he's such a terrific storyteller. And it's so descriptive, it really gives us a picture in like full color almost of the time period that he's talking about. So as you said, you became familiar with this book, you read it. How did you come to this project of translating and annotating and writing? So I mentioned the introduction, it's too big, it's like 70 pages, but it's still pretty big. How did you come to write this introduction with this heavily annotated and translated edition?
1: Okay, so shortly after I obtained a copy of it, and I read it a few times, so I wanted to know if there was more to Pinheiro's story. So I tracked down a granddaughter of his. He still had two granddaughters alive who knew him in and, and um, And she was thrilled to hear from me. So she... And she also put me in touch with her relatives in America. So... I didn't know it, but one of them had been looking for a translator. I I had not contacted them because I was interested in translating. So I was very hesitant to undertake such an enormous task. I wasn't sure I was up to it. But good friends convinced me that I was the person for the project. And that's how we began. Why such a lengthy introduction? Well, uh, um... You know, right away, I showed it to friends, and they said, no, Frum, publisher's going to touch it. He He's too unfiltered. He does not portray this, um, this idealized version of the shtetl. He shows corruption. Um, you know, and so I decided to do an academic translation. If you're doing an academic translation, then it has to have introduction. So that was two and a half years of my life.
0: Wow.
1: And um, it was one of the hardest things I've ever written.
0: It's really in depth, the introduction and your your notes also, as we'll talk about your notes and the introduction. But I think we can leave all that, your notes and the introduction and all the uh, kind of nitty gritty stuff towards the end. And we can get into the book itself and into Pinya Barrow and talking about him and why it's such a wonderful book and uh, a pleasure to read. Uh, and like you say, it really gives a kind of a boots on the ground portrayal, if you will, like a, a portrayal of someone that lived at the time in the Shtetl in the, ni- in the late 19th century. So let's talk about him first and his story, his biography, whether that comes from here or other places. Where was he from? When was he born? Starting with that.
1: First, I just want to say that you, some of your readers might enjoy the book starting at chapter 4 the first two chapters he talks about his family background i really enjoy them a lot of readers find it much more engaging chapter 4 we starts with his own life okay that said let's talk about him pninber was born in 1848 in teraspol teraspol was in the former tsarist russian province of kherson in ukraine now teraspol is part of moldova on the border of ukraine and in the course of his youth, and his, his, he was in dozens of towns and villages, all in that entire area, including in eastern Romania. His, he was the youngest of six children who lived to adulthood. He was born to a father who was a poor malamid. His mother ran a store, and she had to go every two weeks out of town to fairs. He came from a very learned family. His father, his grandfathers, they were lamdonim. He was related to the Taraspol and as uh, his parents, both his parents died by the time he was seven, so so then he went to live with his only brother, who was a big flamden. But after years, brother died. And so many members of his family died young. So many of his sisters, and the sister his. Meanwhile, he was left with his sisters, who barely had enough money to feed themselves, let alone. Feed him and send him to Cheder, you know, pay for a malamin. So that now started the whole process of sending him to this relative and that relative. But some, you know, Pinaber, he didn't like being abused and he was rambunctious, maybe because he didn't have parents. So it's a little wild. And so either he was sent back to his sisters or sometimes he ran back. Their poverty was striking. In this book, though, certainly he has a sense of humor, but there, it's, it's what I would say it's probably the hardest 19th century Jewish autobiography to read at times. It's heartbreaking.
0: I mean, as you say, just in the beginning, when he talks about chapter one, my parents, and he talks about his parents and he talks about his father being a Malabin. And he just, he, he, he talks about the hardship that they went through and the, the poverty and them dying. I mean, it's, it's, Like I said, it's really sad to read that.
1: Yes, and then the sad sad part is, you know, so much, such a a significant percentage of the Jewish people live that way then, which probably people don't really realize.
0: Yeah, I mean, he, he really, he talks you know, he ends off this chapter, he talks about, in the first one, that he says, they suffered in this world as much as if they had lived to be twice their age. And then he says, but who can ask God, what are you doing? God certainly knows what he's doing for you. He's always right. Everyone in town took his death to heart, and, they, and he talks about it, but he, you know, he really sees moon, anyways, but he, he he talks about it. And before, you know, I, I'm going back a little bit, he talks about the poverty of the grossler Malamed grew from day to day. Their children grew up, and the family continued to increase with the birth of each newborn that God bestowed upon them. But the grossler Malamed and Esther Chaya, the grocer.
1: Right, that's his hilarious parent. his parents.
0: yeah, this it, it, his parents. I'm just reading that was where his parents worked extremely hard day and night. they barely earned enough to buy dry bread. I mean, so we had the, the, the extreme poverty that they had and right. then, and then chapter two really talks about the death of his parents his brother his brother really going through everything, and now he ended up orphaned really, and yeah. uh at the time, yes, yes. so. That that's really in the beginning, as you say, it's really you know sad the first few chapters. It's not only that people want to read about him. It's it's really it starts off real down note to start this uh, book before it gets into him. But let's let's talk about him and his early childhood. I guess we kind of said his his kind of biography. I guess we'll bounce around and talk about him with the book in uh, different parts, and then he goes into his his early childhood and what it was like for him growing up.
1: Right. So he speaks a lot about the, his Cheder years and his all all his many different moments some were some were cruel some were very dedicated to him um you know and, and um so um <laughs> You know i want I want to talk to about he talks about every aspect he talks about, the games they played the 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 punishments he received uh, running away from school. Uh,
0: yeah I want to just start off at the beginning, just to say when he talks about his early childhood, what's interesting is first of all, he talks about himself in third person right in the beginning, and he says, now we'll speak about the youngest child. Berala, who unfortunately never had a good day since the day he was born. His impoverished parents, who were so encumbered with children and were barely able to feed themselves, were nonetheless happy with the birth and survival of an additional child, Berala. After all, poor people's greatest pleasure is their children. May they all live and be well. Nonetheless, the, ch- the child born to the poor does not have as much pleasure as the parents, as in the case of Barberla. If he had been lucky, he would have been born to rich parents. Having no luck, he was born to poor parents, surrounded by naked, barefoot siblings, large and small. And he continues on and on. And, you know, skipping his, more than once was his life miraculously saved by being pulled out from under the overturned cradle and all the rags used as his bedding just before suffocating. Uh, and he just goes on and on. I mean, it's, it's really descriptive and it, it's also sad to read it, but it's, it, you know, it continues. In addition, his father was a Muhammad after all. It's almost like a dry humor though, as he's writing in this yes, sad. There's a lot of dry humor there. Yeah, you yeah. really read it. And it's, he says, just as Barolo would fall asleep, his father's students would begin a heated discussion of their tutorial lessons and would begin debating and shouting loudly. Barolo would awake and in the matter of babies who do not sleep their full would begin crying. Father would then scream, "Take him away to his mother." He's not falling asleep. He keeps screaming. I can't study with the children. Uh, and he, he keep going on. They talks about and he's going to his mother in the store, and he says the Sultan would come and someone would come in and wait and would take him away from his mother. And so he really, like, he really brings in that dry humor. But he also is giving a sense of what it's like to be a child of a Malamid with other children in, you know, Ukraine at the time and what life was like there.
1: Right, right. But by, by the way, he, he he's talking about. Ukraine but you know uh, life in the whole uh, and and then he visits Romania and then Belarus mm-hmm. but life in all of tsarist russia and and which included lithuania and and poland and they had a, it's had all of it had a certain common thread certain similarities meaning much of what he wrote could have been said about anywhere in the tsarist empire I just wanted to make that clear. Yeah. Obviously, there are certain cultural differences between one area and another.
0: Right. Uh, Another thing he mentions just. You know, and I'll just keep reading, and I'm sure you'll say stories, but just to to give a sampling, he says, My mother, I barely remember her. Her appearance is hidden from me, though I often remember something that I will never forget. Once when I returned from Cheder, she gave me her portion of milk, saying, The child is tired from studying and weak from toiling all day in Cheder. And she, you know, this is these stories that we hear all the time. This is someone saying, first hand account, that his mother just gave him what she had once he came home from from Cheder. And he talks about his father.
1: Right, so he's (laughs) talking about his mother's compassion, and he was a very compassionate person. So that's his earliest mother. This earliest remembrance of his mother. This act of compassion.
0: Now, something about his father. He says he, would, he was handsome with a broad blonde beard. He used to shave his head and had long curly pears and would wear a kapota that reached the ground. So I think it's important. I don't think we mentioned that they were Hasidim, and yes. we should talk about that. His father
1: was a bersher chassin. Um, bersher Rebbe um, did not have uh, children who became rabbis. So, but it, it, the, the chsedish lasted a little. One of the few chsedish lasted a little while, even after the rebbe was Nifteh. Um But in that whole area, most everyone was uh, chsedish. You know, you had he discusses all the different rebbe's in the area and uh, and his problems with uh, the, the chsedim in that area.
0: And Pinya himself, himself will just jump ahead to, later on in his life. He was a chassid. What type was he?
1: He became a Lubavitcher. There were some, not many. There were some Chabadniks in that area, and his brother had married. Um, his brother's brother-in-law was a was a Chabadnik, and and the Rav of that Shtetl where his uh, his sister-in-law's family was from was. Uh, a Lubavitcher, and he was a—he had been a chassid of the Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya. So that you know that, that that greatly, he was greatly impressed by these the few Lubavitchers he met. And at one point in his life, we can talk about a little later, he decided to make the long trip, mostly on foot, over 500 miles to Lubavitch.
0: Yeah, we can talk about him visiting a Rebbe uh, later. But then, so let's jump ahead. So he goes to Cheder. And uh, he gives a description, as you said before, some of the really just the the actual the, the descriptions in here. Um, he says, as it, talking about one of his malamed, that new at my new malamid, where he says he suffered a lot. He says he was eight years old, and he was there because he was an unruly child, and that Muhammad was very strict. He says the Malamed was called Havduvid Malamed. He said he was told to beat me for everything and anything, and he naturally followed the order. I was beaten for the slightest of gestures. By nature, I was happy. If I chuckled or simply had a happy expression on my face, I would earn a blow of the strap across my face or back. It made no difference where the strap struck, as long as it hit me well. But he says I was never beaten on account of my learning because I knew the sections of Talmud and the Chumash with Rashi's commentary as soon as I reviewed them once on Monday. Yeah, so he left at. with nothing to do all week except to listen to others reviewing it. So he was he says, you know, he kept exactly what was going on. He knew what was going on, and then he just got beaten. So he's really giving you a description of what and it, then it was, he was like. He poured in out of it.
1: his mind because these people, what he knew on Sunday, the first day, they didn't know by Thursday when they were supposed to be tested. So, of course, he acted up.
0: Yeah, so who was he living with? So once his his parents die, um, his mother and then his father. How old did the, How old is he? And then who, who, where does he live?
1: Okay, he's seven when his father passed away. Then they sent him off to his brother in in Gruseles. Um, and then his brother died after a year. And then he came back to Teraspol. And he he was by various different relatives. And then one was very strict. And then they sent him off to his grandfather. Uh not in Gros- uh, by the way, his brother was in Groseles, somewhere else, um Romanovka. But then they sent him back to his uh to his grandfather in Groseles. His um I'll tell you an incident what happened with his grandfather. So um so his grandfather was very old and it was hard of hearing. So his grandfather would learn with him or test him in And then the grandfather would look at the movement of his hands to know if he knew the gemara properly. So every time Pinyabere, because he couldn't, and Pinyabere shouting, so every time Pinyabere didn't move his hands properly, he'd get slapped. So seeing he was getting a raw deal, Pinyabere, he'd hide the shank of his grandfather's pipe. So then his grandfather spent most of the time looking for it. Then the grandfather realized that Pinyabere had been hiding it, so he'd lock up a pipe shank, you know, so they could learn. But then Pina Bear would wriggle out of him anyway. Once the grandfather chased him in the street, pleading with neighbors, catch him. They gave him a good chase. He gave him a good chase. But once he was caught, then he'd kick and he'd throw street dust in their eyes. As Pina Bear writes, he was having the time of his life. But finally, his grandparents had enough, and they sent him back to his sisters in, in, in Traspol. So he was again in Traspol, And then again, they had to wonder, what are they going to do with it?
0: another there's so many stories in here and one of another one that's really sad I don't want to keep going on a sad theme but it, it kind of comes up especially in the beginning is that he he, he had some issues and there so he, he ended up going to the cemetery trying to go to the cemetery to visit his parents forum and he what it's heartbreaking story it, it's heartbreaking really uh, that's why i think it's worth repeating he they didn't You know, I'll skip the part where they didn't want to let him in. They said it's not a place for a boy, for a child. Long story short, he gets into the cemetery. And that's where I'll pick up. He goes into the cemetery. And he says, when I found my father's grave and began to weep out loud, all of them from the youngest to oldest sobbed along with me shedding bitter tears. My contention was that since my life was so very bad, my father should take me to be with him. Things would be good for me with him. I would not be an orphan. No one would beat me and no one would rule over me. I slowly lowered my head onto the gravestone and fell asleep out of weakness and hunger, not having eaten in almost 24 hours. Seeing my condition, they took me into their home, fed me bread and milk, and I became revitalized. I felt unburdened as if a heavy stone had been lifted up from upon my heart. Tears, it seems, are heavy. Then he talks about the grave Obviously, I'm jumping around out of context there a little bit with other people, but it's just, it's a terrible story to think about an orphan and this is, this is what's happening to him. It's, it's really, um, very moving. And he talks about afterwards how he, he ends up back by his sister and he goes back to his sister. And then, then the next part is when he goes with his grandfather, which is what you were saying before with the pipe and he ends up with the grandfather. So, I mean, really it's, it's just, and he really relays over and over all the stories in, in, you know, exact detail of what happened to him. And then he continues on that he ends up being moved around. So I think we could talk about his moving around and also something that's famous, I think, I would say very famous, is the Cantonists, the Chaperists, as he calls them, that they would come at the time in Russia and the terrible decree to take the Jewish children and put them in the uh, Tsar's army. And this is something that plays a role in his life and in, in his autobiography.
1: Yes, it does. First, I, I just would like to say part of the uniqueness of his autobiography is he's so he's so open with his emotions he'll express it with his emotions so in the other in the muelic autobiographies of that period they're very unrevealing remarkably so of their inner life and Pinnebert shares it so readily that you know every reader feels I would think would feel connected with him in any case let's get back to the Cantonists. So the Cantonists were, because of uh, it was it was a czarist decree that Jews had to fill fulfill large quotas. I think it started 1827, and um, in order to meet those quotas, eventually they started kidnapping children. So the children were seized by chappers. And then they would be sent to non-Jewish homes like till the age of eighteen. And then once they are eighteen, they would start their twenty-five years of service, military service. So this was this Tsar's attempt at alleviating the Jewish problem by he figured most would convert and assimilate by that at the end of those many years which I don't think he was very successful. In any case, um, so Pinya Bear's in shul, Roshone, um, and he's davening, and all of a sudden he sees, he understands that there's a whole pack of of, of hapers come and try to capture children all over the shul. And his sister quickly made her way to him, grabbed him, had him crouch underneath her dress, underneath her. And she walked slowly and made sure he walked with her. And that way she left Shul without people realizing where he was. And people were amazed how he was not caught. But even afterwards he had to live in weeks in in an attic alone in the dark, in hiding because they were looking for him. They knew, they knew he existed, and they're looking for him. He's a, he's like a perfect person, a yosim, uh an orphan. Where they preyed on orphans. They had no one to come to their defense. And he meets okay, another time. He he had to hide a few times from cantonists. Eventually, they they thought that he was going to there was going to be another raid by khapers so they sent him off to uh, their his sister sent him off to their aunt who they had never met in Chichelnik, which was quite a distance by the time he arrived the uh, uh, official word was given that the cantonist decree had ended but he meanwhile he was in this faraway place so he was stuck there for a bit in general no. he had to hide out because he was not registered his birth was not registered, so he was he so that played a large role in his life not having documents. Many Jews didn't register because they were free afraid of conscription, afraid of all sorts of things, and rightfully so. And but it led to great hardship on his
0: part. Now let's talk about him going to Yeshiva. He goes to Yeshiva. You Nodessa know, he learns, and I want to ask you a general question also that how common or how uncommon is it for he, he's an orphan, as we said, and he runs around from the hoppers from the Cantonese he ends up bouncing around and and by the way, we totally like we're being very general and glossing over there's chapters and chapters where he goes through in his you know vivid description of his life and going to different towns, different places he's staying and different stories and anecdotes, and you can always feel free to jump in and relate any but he ends up in yeshiva, and before we even get to him going to yeshiva, how rare is it for an orphan, someone to end up in in this situation? And you mentioned how poor he is and how terrible his life is. How does he get to yeshiva? Is that a common thing?
1: Common. Um, well,
0: um, well, um, the word might not be common, but uh, how how you know surprising what,
1: isn't? He, what happened to him was uh, his sisters didn't know what to do with him so they sent him to a, they sent him to a relative of of theirs and he promised to give him you know to hire to give him a chinuch, to, get, to hire a rabbi to teach him but he didn't and he became a house meshoris a house servant to this person to this relative so he worked him He worked him horribly hard. I'm doing everything. And then he was there about two and a half years. And then suddenly after like two and a half years of slaving away, he picked up a Gomorrah. You know, he would daven, he would like film, obviously he picked up the Gomorrah and he, he couldn't, at once he knew it well and he didn't know it at all. And he comes from a family of learners. And this, this, sparked within him this huge yearning to connect to, to learning again to maintain this vital connection and it, he he started planning his getaway and one day he found the opportunity and he ran off and he went to a nearby town and he sat in the base madrash. And someone said, You know, who are you? And he told him, and he said, And they started learning Rashi, and a good head, and he caught on quickly. And then he heard about that there was a, a Talmud Torah in Odessa for poor children. Now, today, people use a Torah to mean a whole variety of things, a But in Europe, a talmatoira meant. A communal institution for poor children. It didn't mean stamacheder; it was different than a cheder. So, so once in the besmeder, there they heard he wanted to go, so they raised some money, and he made his way there. And it's a whole story how he got admitted. They didn't want to admit him because they, they thought they didn't. He didn't know anybody; he's an orphan. But he managed to get in. And he learned. He had great rabbis there, and he learned a lot. But again, he was unregistered, and he had to go. They would start checking, uh, checking the students in the Talmud Torah. So, so he had to go again into hiding. How common was it for poor children? You know, once you once you get into yeshiva gedolei, it was very common. You know, you know people to come without anything but to, for that age, it was rare usually they'd be working by his age uh, from a poorer family, but he had that experience and he forgot his learning and he very much wanted to he understood the vitality of limb now
0: how long did he learn in yeshiva? i mean did he he ends up in, we'll that, in
1: that in that Talmud Torah, so he only learned twice in so he learned there for a few months and then he had to go into hiding and then later um after he became a chosin i think he became a chosin at 16 he he decided he was very impressed with the as he met and he decided to go to Lubavitch, and ask the rebbe where to learn and ask for brachah for riches yomim since most of members in his family died young. The bracha worked, he lived into his 80s, the the Tzemach Tzedek advised him to learn in Shklov, which was not far from Lubavitch, this is in Belarus. And he went, but also he, he only was there a few months before an issue came up with his internal passport. So his formal education was limited, but useful to him, he could learn. He could, he could, you know, he 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 could learn, and he did learn.
0: Yeah, and that's what I was going to ask, generally, just taking a step back of this specific time period, and we're, we're going to get to his engagement at 16, in 1864, 65 in a second, but just taking a step back of him, even later on in life. So he was able to learn, but he was, like, what was his...
1: I mean, if he would have stayed in Shklov for the three years he wanted until his Hasana, certainly he could have, you know, become a much bigger, you know, Talmud But nonetheless, uh, he was, in Shklov, he became very close to Rosh Hashivah. The Rosh Hashive was his favorite Talmud. He would learn with him extra at night and all other times. He saw how devoted he was in his Hasmada. And he kept up his learning throughout his life.
0: Right, so let's, let's go to his engagement, which is a really... Uh, I I, I, I as know the word is like the story, but his description of the story is uh, a very interesting description of what happened. So they uh, they find him he's sleeping it's after him Kipper and they wake him up and say wake up sleepyhead you know we're all waiting for you this is what you know I'm like paraphrasing here what's going on He said get up quickly come down and he went downstairs and he sees all different the people there they're cheery they're happy what's going on he said go get dressed wash up and and go and uh, he said what's going on? They said, duh, duh. You, you know, you keep going. They keep pushing him up, pushing him up. They're not telling him what's going on. Right. And they said that he was sleeping in an oven. They said he was sleeping in an oven they couldn't wake him up. It was, it was warm. Anyways, they bring him and he gets there and he gets to the Rav's house and he finds a crowd of 60 to 70 men, not including the woman. And he said, all were already under the influence. <laughs> when they saw me, a sudden shout went up. He's here at last, The handsome groom. Look how he waited to be asked to come while such a large crowd kind of horror was waiting him. Some defended me while others blamed me out of respect for the local rabbi. He shouldn't have delayed so long and waited for others to ask him to come. They grasped me and placed him next to the rabbi of Shoimla and it says he, he he was looking around what's going on. He sees different people were well, there. I'm skipping around. And he says that the chazan was there. He says the crowd was well imbibed and the table was laden with with wine. I knew that after Yom Kippur, people drank at the rabbis, but I never expected they were about to write an engagement contract with me. And he says, hand over an ink and a pen, said the cantor, the chazan. I wonder why I need ink and a pen all of a sudden, but I soon knew it all. I soon knew all. And he said, suddenly, Rib Shulem, who had been speaking the entire time of Itziyeh, while his wife Dvorah stood stood nearby, suddenly addressed me. You know, Pinchas you're now becoming engaged and we're about to write the engagement contract. How's that possible? I said, what does it mean I'm, that I'm becoming engaged? How can you write an engagement contract when I don't have the slightest idea with whom? Who's my father-in-law? And this is all these people that are drunk over there. They're all drinking away. And they just like dragged him out. No one wanted to tell him anything. It's really amazing when you read this. And he says, Shulam said, yes, you're right about that. You need to know everything. So you should know that all of your friends are in agreement. All of your friends, they're like marrying him off. They're in agreement that you should become engaged. to his daughter. You know Abitzi and his wife? Well, and you know his daughter too. And if it's agreeable with all of us, must be agreeable with you as well." Telling him what to do, he right. said, and and everyone gave their consent, and they knew he was an honest and virtuous Jew, and he was he was making a sacrifice to obtain a Torah scholar, such as myself, as my son, as a son of Lord, despite my poverty. They wanted to make him happy, and they give a whole thing, and they're going to promise him three hundred ruble in cash, which will get up to. There's a problem with that money, and uh, all these different things. What he's going to do. Um, and and he says, but what's also really he describes, he said he was torn. He couldn't decide what to do because he never expected such a development. Sudden development. He said all his relatives thought it was a fitting match, but what did they have to lose? Right. But he said, this was such a sudden development for me. I pictured before him, it's this coarse house, the silly village girl, the shameful nickname soldier, which it was called, and many other issues. If i to get a belief, what would they would they let me? Could I possibly contradict all the others, especially since they were all on my side and meant well for me? So I really have to stop and turn it over to what's going on. Really, as we see, we see Pinyabar's internal struggle here with what he should do. He's surprised. He's awakened. He's thrown into this. Everyone's drinking. They're marrying him off. This the his Kala's father. They're called soldier. It's kind of a derogatory he name. Served, he was served in the army. Look, so right, yeah, let's talk about what's going on. So that was
1: a disgrace, right? Right. Yes, yeah, so, and, was, and
0: yeah. go ahead.
1: No, 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 no. So yeah, and and this was all arranged by his relative Shulim because he felt guilty how he treated him when he was a house servant. So he decided to do him the great favor of finding somebody. He found somebody, supposedly a wealthy couple who knew, who would support him for with eternal cast, meaning support him with room and board, so he could learn. But unfortunately, right afterwards, right after the engagement, he did agree his. Future in laws lost their money. And that dream was out the window.
0: Which is very unfortunate. So he ends up married to someone he didn't want to, essentially, in the beginning. Well, and, he, then
1: he has yeah. this whole debate. You know, uh, first of all, she was 13, so they weren't getting married right away anyway. They were at least waiting two years and they went waited longer. But um, he had this whole debate because here, he, his in-laws didn't have money like it was stipulated in the Tenoim. and so officially he could have broken it but then he had pity on the Kale like she'd never get a learner again who knows if she'd be able to marry her parents didn't have money you needed a dowry and he went to a rabbi, I think uh, I, he, he went to um, he I think he went to the Um and um, he asked, and the Stefaneshter says, "Don't look at Yechis or money. Look, you know, look. You, stay, stay, stay engaged. It will work out." And because uh, he, he was became very eligible, he, was, he had a good head. He was a learner. He could have gotten a wealthy, learned father in law. And his father in law was not learned at all. He was a soldier, as you mentioned. So, but he listened to the rabbi. And he kept it, he he kept it, he he kept it. But he decided to go off and he won, at least he's not marrying right away, let him go off and learn. So that's when he went to Lubavitch, most of the way by foot, a lot of the way by foot. And he talks about his whole journey there, how he had to raise money, you know, to go to wagons for food all along the way. He tells you, he brings you along for his whole journey, whole difficult journey. And yeah, he arrives at Samar Sadek and he thought he would be able to learn in Shklov for a good three years. And it didn't work out that way because of problems with his passport.
0: Yeah, he really talks about him traveling when he first gets the passport, and then he travels, and he talks about, he talks about, uh, he says he was among the Chabadniks, and he decided to go to see the Rebbe. This is where, you know, he really, really, and he really relays exactly what we're really skipping over. All the time, he's going back and forth into Taraspal and other cities before this, he's going back and forth, and his sister, and this sibling, and that sibling is going here, he's going there, he's relaying the whole story back and forth. There's like a lot of different, very granular details, if you will, in this Uh, Autobiography. It's not the type of story or the autobiography that paints in broad strokes. He really gives you, you know, the little specifics. You really get, you know, mired in these small in a a good way. You really get bogged down by that. He really gives you the exact little stories that happen. Eventually, the tale moves forward. It moves along slowly, but it's really this general, broad kind of thing. Sorry, not well, this it, general world thing. It's that, right. that 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 was. It's not like that. It's really very, very, very specific. And so we're doing yeah. it like the general here, general thing here. And you really have to read it to really get that flavor and that right. feel of what he's doing.
1: It's amazing that way. It's you don't there really you don't have other books like that.
0: No, not 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 many not many autobiographies at all. Right, um, that are like this. Right. Then he talks about the Lubavitcher Chereva and going to Shklov, and he meets with the Baba Rebbe, and that's a, a story then, in here. You know, it, it's almost
1: like he sees that the the and the chsedim are very learned, and he's it's almost too good to be true. Is it really? Is it really that way? Because he was not for, impressed with the rabbis from that he saw in the area where he was from. Uh, um, the rabbis maybe. Maybe they see them. Maybe, I don't know how many rabbis he said. So he decides to spy on that Samar tzadek, and he does. He spies on him through a keyhole, and he sees he's sitting and learning, and no pump. You know, the the tzadek, he wants. He need he needs something. He needs to wash his hands. He gives a bang with a stick, and the and the the, the shamus comes in, and he washes his hand. He gives another bang. And then, you know, it's everything but Boshtis, and he loves it. It's, 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 it, he wanted a very serious Rebbe, and he, he had found.
0: Right after this, he ends up with, by the, uh, Liever Rebbe, Lever, if I'm pronouncing it right. And I know there's some controversy around him, but that's not for this book, for this conversation. And he goes there and delivers an estrig. That's the, the point of the story, if you want to relay that story and what happens uh-huh. there.
1: Okay well the, regarding so he he had to um I think that's when he was being sent back to Romania from by the Russian government if I'm not mistaken I could be mistaken he went back to Romania a few times anyway has to go back to Romania so there's some lever see them at the border saying asking you know every Asking all around, you know, is someone going to across the border? Because they didn't have an external passport to cross the border. And they had bought an expensive esrig for the rabbi. And it was out of So uh, he says, I'm going. So they go, hooray. And they're, they're dancing. And uh, they're, they're thrilled. So they go, here's a, a very expensive esrig for the lab, And bring it over the border. Bring it right to the rabbi. We're going to the range. That wagon will pick you up meanwhile, so he crosses the border but there's a huge storm that night huge and uh, and finally he, he gets across the border and there's Chassidim with a wagon waiting for him on the other side are you Pinyabar? yes we're Bear. yeah, they're exciting they were the ones who started dancing in the street so so they get in the coach to go back to Le'ave and then these three Chassidim they had like paid for the schus of picking up the asrig at the border. So, so they said, okay, give me the give me the. They said, let's see the asrig. No, I'm not, I didn't open it to look at it myself. It's for the rabbi. I'm, we're not opening it. And Pinyaber, you should know, was a big person physically. So, you know, it's not, he was nobody to mess with. So, so they said, "Look, I paid, you know, I don't know, 30 rubles for this khus, and I can't even bring the nobody had been in to see the Lave Rebbe for 2 years." So it was a very big schus to be able to do this. And you know, the guy the guy says, "I paid the bear says, "I don't care. You you paid for it. That that's your business. You could have just sent a wagon to the border, but I they asked me to bring it and I'm bringing it to the Rebbe. And so he struggled a whole night with this person. Finally, he gets off the wagon. The guy again tries to, you know, they arrive in Levit. The whole town is, is, the whole town comes out. Oh, the Asrig the came. The Asrig, everybody's out on their porches in the streets. You'd think it was, you know, Sevatera. And, uh, and so he comes out. And again, this fellow, he tries to take away the Asrig. And so Pinaber works the crowd. He says, he says you know is it right you know he makes a whole appeal to the crowd is it right i was the one who brought it is it right that he should bring it into the rabbi and they go no you know whatever you know he worked the crowd and he went in and he was the first one to privately see the rabbi in two years and the rabbi benched him he thought it was a fabulous asrik and he says if you need anything else come to me he uh he asked, also asked for bracha for he goes. You know what? Uh, come, come, go to my doctor. His doctor checked him over, and he said it was okay.
0: And something else that comes up here is the ad vad bechlal ad ad bechlal. Up until is it you go when you say until something? Sort of, when he was to get married, the tzemach tzadik or Mendel of to calls him and told him to get married at. 20 so is it until 20 or you know including 20 or before right, 19 right. or 20. So the
1: so, tzamech told him don't get married when he went and asked for broche for ariches yomim the tzamech said don't get married till the age of 20 that will be how you will have riches yomim and he goes what i'm already engaged tzamech tzadik said you heard me don't marry till 20. So then he, he goes to Shklov, he leaves Lubavitch, uh, uh, he leaves Shklov, he goes back, then he starts thinking, you know, first of all, everybody, he's embarrassed to be without a talis. He's such a big guy and he has a big beard and everybody's, he's the alter bocher. And uh, he's embarrassed not to wear a talis, not to be married. And meanwhile, the rabbi told him not to be, not to marry for till he's 20. So then he starts thinking, did the rabbi mean you know, uh, till, till I adva'ad baklal, meaning till I mamish till 20 or to the beginning of my 20th year, which means when he starts, when he turns 19, which is the beginning of his 20th year. So he has that question. So he decides to ask three rabbis that question. And, and he goes to three different rabbis. He goes to the, the Samar Tzedek's son, Bar Shalom, who Lubavitch Rebbe was an uh, innacle from him. He came to Romania, so he visits him, and, and, and the, uh, the, um, the Lever, and um, was it the Shtaphan And uh, he yes. received the same answer from all three, that, uh, that no, the Rebbe only meant when he turned a day, you know, right after, the day after he turns 19. And Taka, that's when he got married, a few days after he turned 19.
0: Yeah, and he has some interesting, hmm. descriptions there as well, he talks about right, so I think right. the Tzemach Tzedek was at this time, right? So he talks about... Right, um, so he couldn't go and ask the Tzemach because he had, I forgot to say that, because
1: Tzemach Tzedek had, uh, had passed away shortly after he saw him.
0: Yeah, so he talks about the Baruch Shalom of the son and he talks about how he was he had a deformed you know it's interesting how he says it he goes like why would this matter Baruch Shalom had a deformed hand but was a tremendous Torah genius you know he talks about him and you, you talk about this in the notes and he talks about Baruch Shalom he talks about going to him and then the next part he talks about the Stefan uh, Esther, and he goes to him as well he has him the same shayla. so he there, there I want to read a little bit of the description there with the Hasidim there because oh, oh, oh yeah you like yeah. Well, that's that. show that, that, you know. Listen, there's so much in here. I'm cherry picking things here and there. It's a really no, wonderful uh, book. And read, if, read read the parts you like. Yeah. If I, I yeah. haven't said for the listeners, um, there'll be a link in the show's notes where you can purchase it. It's like twenty nine dollars from. I'll, I'll check $25, it up. Twenty five. Twenty five, even cheaper, and it's on Amazon. It's on Prime. You can get it. I know it's the Shneidman Plaza and Liquid Head copy, so it's it's available. It's around. Um, but yes, you should read the book. But anyways, he goes on. He goes to the Stefan Esther. He said he agrees that up to but not including. That is, I may marry a few days after beginning my 20th year. And he also wished him a good life. He says, I like the rebbe very much, but I did not like the chassidim at his court. I had a major debate with them, and the rebbe heard about it and sided with me. This is what happened. On the seventh day of Pesach, the chassidim became so drunk. That very early that morning, they went off singing to the bathhouse and immersed themselves in the mikvah, fully dressed. Muhammad's drunk. He says, they threw each other into the mikvah, and as a result, transgressed a number of Jewish laws such as the prohibition of squeezing water from one's clothing and Yotav and the like. Furthermore, they look so devilish. Then, during the prayer service, some of them who weren't kahanim went to Duchen. I did not allow it, and they shouted, Who are you, you old bachelor? You have no respect for all the Learn from us how to be a Hasid. You can't even drink any liquor. There's a bunch of drunkens here. Uh, but drinking is like a theme in, in this uh, part of the book. He says, though I was certainly embarrassed by their comments, I nonetheless replied that I would drag away anyone daring to duchen, because the code of Jewish law, Shulchan Aruch, states that a drunk may not duchin. Well, what about also a non But anyways, I keep interjecting, by the way. Hopefully, listeners are getting the point. Back to his words. And in case the Hasidim followed a different code of Jewish law, a different Shulchan Aruch, I would go ask the Rebbe. You can just imagine the, the upper mid by those drunks. How so? They had already spent half a year at the Rebbe's court and did not allow a single day to pass without ticking." So every new guest visiting the rabbi had to give money to this group of drunkards to buy liquor which just go to
1: For those who don't know, Tikkin means alcohol.
0: <laughs> so now they ask me, where were you when we were busy with the splitting of the Red Sea all night long until wee hours of the morning, until the time of the recital of the morning Shema, just as the Tanaic sages in Bnei Brak recounted the exodus from Egypt the entire night? And you talk about this, was to, the minute to stay up the whole night and, of the seventh night of Pesach. And we also immersed ourselves in the mikvah already in their clothing, and all, and along comes this misnagged, this overgrown kid, and gives us his opinion, you're about to get trounced. I went right to the Rebbe to at least let him know what was happening, and to hear what he had to say, to say about it, because I saw that they could truly give me a beating. I was sorry that I had started the whole thing, because everyone, as you can understand, was on their side. But when they saw that I was running to the Rebbe, they called me back, telling me they would not do it, as long as I did not say anything to the Rebbe. But the Rebbe himself was already aware of what had happened in the shul and sent the Gabi to tell them not to dare duchen because the young man was in fact correct. At that, the Muslim prayer service ended, but they continued to drink. He said they had had prayed earlier than the scheduled time since the congregation would assemble about two hours later at 10 a.m. while they prayed at 7 or 8. They were they were the ten or so permanent Hasidim who stayed in the shul and ate at the Rebbe's table while leaving their wives and children back in the towns from which they came. They stayed there, drank, and became real drunkards. The exact opposite of the Labavish Hasidim. So you can see that with the the he liked Labavishers and the anti the real that he had for these uh, Hasidim. And then he goes on. I that story was really. I think it gives also a taste of him describing life of what it was like. And like you said, there's no filter. He's telling you exactly as it is, as he saw it in obviously negative light that he saw this story, but he's giving it exactly as it is.
1: And he was always up for a fight. You know, he was always up to defend his opinion. He, d- he wasn't someone to back down.
0: No, clearly not. And and you could tell, he says at the end, he had Haroto, you know, he regretted that he yeah, did okay. it, okay. but he, he, he wasn't telling like he did. <laughs> That's afterwards. Yeah, he actually uh, he actually did it. Then he goes on. There's more stories. So, I mean, there's endless stories like this. That's just like two pages. And I'm reading your translation that you translated. We'll talk a little bit about your translation shortly. But that, uh, and I think I probably went out of order. I think maybe that's that comes before we del- that he delivered the re- the esv to the But that's the the point. Then we get to uh, his wedding. He says, "My wedding in a fiery pursuit in 1867, 1868." So perhaps we want to talk about uh, a little bit about his wedding.
1: His wedding, um, um, is, is there, um... Well, just there, there, nothing, you know... I don't remember anything. It was during a snowstorm, but I, I don't remember anything particularly... Is there a certain part that you, you no, want to know? No, come no,
0: no, nothing in particular. No, no, just asking um, nothing, nothing in particular. And then, well, we could really, yeah, nothing in particular. And, he, you know, we can move on to where he talks about in search of a livelihood. And that really is important because the title of the book is the Sheikhit, and he, his livelihood ends up being a Sheikhit. How does right. he get there that he's going to become a shaykh Right. So he tries
1: a whole bunch of different things. He tries being a grain dealer, growing watermelons. He. He even tried becoming a tavern key, t- keeper. You know, here here he gave up, he swore off drinking at an early age because he didn't like the drunks he saw around him. So, but he let himself become a tavern keeper. But you can imagine, like when two or three non-Jews would come in, they'd have a few drinks, they'd start piece, speaking coarsely, and then he'd tell them to leave. And, you know, they didn't like that. And so it caused a whole racket, you know. Here they wanted, you know, a tavern keeper to, you know, sit down with them, get chubby chummy with them, and you know, obviously he was not suited for that. He wanted them to buy their drinks and leave, but not everybody does that. So he he, so to becoming a shoichid, he doesn't even uh, he does he doesn't talk about any deliberations about the thought of becoming a shoychid. It was really. It was he was really well suited to be a shaykhid. He was honest. He was shomayim. You know, he w- wasn't a, a businessman. Um, and and then he starts the whole process of trying to learn shikita without any money, without where to stay. We, you you had to you, the shochtim wanted to be paid for being trained, be, you know, training him. To sh- he needed money. To eat while he's learning, you know, the shchite. He talks about every aspect of, you know, Um, in not too distant past, for thousands of years, most every Jew had contact with the sheikhit practically every week. Every shtetl, no matter how, you know, every shtetl had a sheikhit. Sometimes a a shtetl didn't. Or a derfolah, a village, didn't have a Navarav, but they had a shoychit, because you, that's like a primary aspect of Jewish life. So he, but there's, we have very few accounts of exactly what it involved. Um, and he tells you every aspect, sh, you know, all, the sharpening, the sharpening knives, the, every aspect, especially in volume two. Here he talks about the whole training. But in volume two, he talks about you know his whole day as a shoichet and uh, the selling the chaylev and the slaughtering for the Muslims and the Crimea was mainly Muslim Tartars and um so 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 and then he had to pay he had to get certification and he had to be tested and he had and the shochetim wouldn't let him get certified until they paid him. And and he had and, to pay uh, them. He had to pay I mean, them, yes. Yeah. Even though some of the Shachtim there was really only one who really sort of uh really trained him. But the other shachtim there, since they had permitted it, they wanted to be paid too. So what could he do? They wouldn't they wouldn't sign the you know, they wouldn't sign the certification or whatever unless unless either were paid. Um
0: Which which really brings us to the part about getting the money to his uncle. The story of visiting his uncle, and he says that he had a wonderful, a great idea. He says it was with like uh, sarcasm, drooping sarcasm. And he starts off the story, and he relates. You know, he says this great idea, and then he goes on a little bit. Then he starts off the story. He says, "Here begins my account of my horrible trip to visit my uncle." And he's rolling on the ground in hunger. He's starving, and he gets a whole line of ice, and he ends up. If you want to talk more about this story to to visit his uncle, but this is like where. He, he relays his whole life story with, like, these side little stories where he goes here and he goes there. And, and on the way, he's hungry, he's starving. He even tells you, you know, you bought. Just, like, give an example. He says to, to the beginning, and then I'll, I'll let you say more about the story. But he just says, I remember buying bread and some green cucumbers and then going to the train station to buy a ticket to the, to i mean going butcher the name, to Rosdelnia to, to travel to my Uncle and as you write in your. Footnote you saying maybe they sold those like yellow cucumbers, but that's what I said green cucumbers, like he's very vivid. The train left the at Taraspa at two thirty and I arrived at Rosalind at four. I inquired I'm like the of city, where they knew where my uncle Italy lived, his and memory provided is his amazing. no Imam says he said they they he lived fourteen verses from there. I asked him directions of his village, which they gave me and I began walking there. He said it was very hot because it was midsummer, the tenth of Tamuz, but it soon began to cool down. He says he you know his whole thing, he talks about how he you know just he's walking and it was started to cool down, and he was hungry and he didn't know how long it was, and he started walking, he's hungry, eventually he on the floor, he's rolling it's like a whole really long story. But yeah, if you want to talk more about this uh bad idea to visit the uncle. it's
1: a gr- it's a it's a great story. You know, and, and that's the point of the book. The book's really a, it's just a great read. No matter who no matter who you are. Um but you know, he had this great idea. He heard he had a, his uncle became wealthy, so he go, he needed he wanted he needed to pay off uh, in order to get his first shritah position. He had to pay the the previous shirik twenty twenty rubles for his for his moving expenses. So he had to raise that money, and he didn't have it. So I heard one of his uncles became wealthy, so he goes to track him down, and so so at one you know it's a long story but at one point a storm comes and it's the middle of tammuz that's the hardest hottest time of the year and it's freezing cold freezing it's at night and so he goes to hide to he goes to hide in a haystack so he 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 carves himself in, and as soon as he and this whole flock of ravens they had been also protecting themselves from the weather in that haystack and then inside inside the haystack it's dry, but uh but but uh but he's freezing, and he thinks he's going to freeze, and he keeps thinking about is his wife she'll be she'll be in aguna nobody will find his body maybe the ravens will eat up all of him nobody will ever find his body. you know if he died on the open people could but here he's in a haystack and the deliberations are just uh, go on and on finally uh the, the, what rouses him is the ravens start coming for him they they think he maybe he's dead and they want a good meal. So that gets him scared and he he says come what may and he starts running. And he runs and he runs and he runs and he finally makes it to his uncle's village. Not even a village, a hamlet. And his uncle lives in a zemlyanka. It's like a it's like a house It's half under the ground. You know, his uncle was once had money. Now he was a poor man. And uh You know, that was his great idea. His conclusion is, you know, don't put your trust in people. He put his trust too much in people and he should have relied on the Eberster more, on Hashem more.
0: Yeah, that story, the description in that story are also fantastic. It's a whole epic journey. He he goes through literally, um, just, I've been reading a bunch of selections, but I think it's worth reading a little bit of this, even though you described it. And he talks about, The birds quickly calmed down and found a place where they hid from the wind and rain, and I found a place where I covered myself completely. Um, The wind continued to screech and wail, but I had no power over my immediate surroundings or me. The rain also did not reach me, and I lay tucked away in the haystack. My My situation seemed good, but then the cold started to penetrate me. It was as if I was trembling from a high fever, for my teeth were rattling, and in general, I did not feel well. I felt that my strength was leaving me. Then I'm going to skip a paragraph. And he says, I began to think of my beloved wife, who had never seen or know the wider world. Should she be left to be a young Aguna on top of that? No one knew where I had gone. I did not tell her where I was going. And the haystack in which my body would lie was off on the side at some distance from the road. Who knew how long my body would lie around before being buried, or how long it would be before someone would happen upon me? And who knew if the starving birds were not waiting to eat on my body? If so, no one would ever know who had died in this spot and whose bones were lying around. Being unable to remarry, my wife would then be miserable forever. While having this frightening thought, I felt that my strength was leaving me, and I began to say, vidui. I cried, but no tears flowed. I spoke, but no words could be heard, since my lips were not moving. But my mind was firm and sharp. I lifted my eyes toward the sky, and I began to bid farewell to it. Though the world had not shined for me, and not during my life, and not during my death, I cast my eyes toward the four corners of the earth and bade farewell to them. Nonetheless, I did not feel like leaving this world so soon and so young. I was only 22 years old and had not left any vestiges of myself. But what does that matter for when God wants something, it has to be as he wants. I started to doze off again forever. I began to see the horror of death before me. Oh, horrible, horrible, even now when I remind myself of it. Suddenly, the ravens screeched, which caused me to wake up. I opened my eyes, and I felt like someone being pulled from the jaws of death. I noticed all the ravens jumping toward the roosting sites where I was lying. They apparently thought that I was already dead, and would now have prey upon which to gorge themselves. This aroused in me the desire to live. I thought, as long as even one of my lives can still move, I must save myself. Even if i meant to die, God forbid, let me die on the road so that I can be found quickly. And perhaps God will have pity on me, and I'll be able to drag myself to someone's house, even non-Jews, non-Jews. as long as I'm among my people as long as I am among people, so that they will be able to inform my wife what became of me. Then I said to the birds, No, I cannot allow you to eat me alive. I must leave here by any means possible. With those words, I suddenly lifted myself up so that the birds became frightened and scattered, and I ripped myself away, literally out of the hands of death, and began running with my last bit of strength. I can honestly say... That I did not have any strength left, and my I myself do not know how or from where that bit of energy appeared. When I think back about this incident, I marvel at where I found the strength to move forward. And it goes on and on. And he really, like you said before, he really tells you his emotions. Not, he, it's what's what's amazing is his descriptions, and also he's he's just open about his is open and raw about his emotions. He his memory. It's really unique in all those things when you kind of read the description. And I'm reading your translation. So for uh, readers, you wrote this in Yiddish. This is the um, translation that I'm reading. So that's, that's really ends with the uncle. And this is really we're towards the end of the volume where he um, gets the certification and he goes back to Lubavitch. And where does this end? If you want to tell us, where does this uh, volume one, where does the book uh, end off?
1: It ends where he got his first shrita position. Through he got his first shrita position. He 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 had just got his certification, and he and he realized before he starts working as a shoychet, he he better run off to Lubavitch again because he's never gonna have another chance. He'll have a full time job, uh, you know, and it's just not gonna work out. So he leaves. Without telling his wife and she was pregnant, and chances are if he if he had a son, he wouldn't be there for the british and he knew that, and at the time he 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 thought he was doing the greatest thing in the world. he realized it was his fanaticism later, obviously he regretted it um but so he ran off to Lubavitch, and he comes to Lubavitch, and the Marash tells him, "Go home." He traveled 500 miles, and and the Marash, the Rebbe Rabbi Shmuel, told him, "Go home." Goes, what? So he goes back to where he was staying, and he says, "The Rebbe told me to go home." He's and he goes, "No, the Rebbe certainly meant you could stay till Mitzvah Shabbos." So. He let himself be convinced. But the, the Rebbe saw him in Shabbos and commented to somebody, he's still here. Anyway, he said, the Rebbe said, nonetheless, it will work out well. So after Shabbos, he runs home, races home as fast as he can, and he comes home and his wife, yes, his wife gave birth to a son, and she said, oh, it's a shame you didn't come three days earlier because. And that was how long he delayed in Lubavitch, three days. His same didn't come three days earlier because a group of men came looking for a Sheikh to hire from a certain shtetl. So that's why the rabbi told him to go home. But, uh, so anyway, so, but, uh, he he decided to go to that shtetl anyway because wherever that shaykh was coming from, that, his previous, position was open. So he figured maybe he'd get a chance to be a shaykh there, and and he did. And that's where we end off. Him him sort of forwarding that he got the position, but that community, Slabudja, turned out to be extremely trying. So it lands in a cliffhanger.
0: Yeah and and the reason for the end there is because this is the first two volumes of his autobiography and then there's going to be volume 3 will be the next one. Um I was going to ask you what makes the work unique but I think we we got that point across to an extent. So but why why did he write the book? Why did he write and publish it? And I I also don't think we talked about when he published it either.
1: You also didn't think what?
0: I, I just wrote two questions to one. Let's let's step back. I didn't say when he published. it. So let's let's actually do the second question first. When did he publish the autobiography?
1: Okay, it was published in three parts with an addendum in 1928 and 1929 in Tikva, where he lived. He started writing it in the early 1900s. And he wrote it because he he lived in the Crimea. The Crimea was like the frontier of the Tsarist Empire and, and of the Pale of Settlement. And he saw some of his children were going had gone off the Derg. and he he decided to write. He was, you know, uh, there weren't many there weren't many Orthodox uh, people Orthodox Jews who wrote autobiographies. Certainly not. Hasidic Jews, but he decided to use this new, so this relatively new medium to try to convey. He felt that he could convince his children through the Ashkocher process of his life. They could, they could deduce that there was a God in the world, and once there was a God in the world, he. The way he thought, everything falls into place. Then the, the divinity of the Te'er, observance of Shabbos, Kasher, etc. So that's, that's what he wanted to do. So he's tracing his dashkocha practice in his life. And every aspect of his life is dashkocha pratis. Meaning just and specifically that he's an orphan. Now we're using orphan in the Hebrew sense of the word. and Hebrew, orphan means Loss of one parent as as a minor. Opposed in English, orphan means both parents. In Hebrew and Yiddish, it means even one parent. And and he felt that just like it says in Chumash, that Hashem is the father of father of orphans. That yes, Hashem looked over him and and his his whole life. This. Hashem was guarding over him his entire life. And so in that respect, we have an extremely unbiased autobiography. All the masquilic autobiographies, they really have an agenda. They want to show, you know... uh, they they have a social a social agenda. They want to show the fallacies of orthodoxy, the a whole agenda. And he has no agenda. He's just tracing the Ashkacha Pratis in his life. And in that respect, it makes. And he's like a Masich Lefitumai, meaning he in the course of his narrative, he just mentioned so many details as we mentioned, so he you get a real taste of life. Yeah.
0: What was the reception of the autobiography like after he published it? Okay, it wasn't, it it was
1: it was more it was more printed than published. Right. Meaning that uh, they paid a publisher to print it, and then it depended on the family to distribute it. So um, 100 copies were kept in Aretz Cicero, 500, co- 500 were printed altogether. A 100 copies were kept in ancestral. Cicero, 400 were sent to a, had a son in New York who was going to distribute them. So this son he saw in the Yiddish papers that there was uh, like the big literary critic was Shmuel Niger. N-I-G-E-R. And um, so he went to him. He went to his office. He goes, would you review my father's books? And he looked it over and he, Shmuel Nigger found it intriguing. And then he followed, I found in archives, the son's letters in YIVO. And then um and then the sun writes up a couple of weeks. You you said you, you said you were gonna write a review. Anyway, the review came out, and he, it's very rare for a make or break literary figure to review a privately published book which was unedited. The pub the publisher didn't edit it at all. And so and he he mentioned a lot of these points that we're talking about now. It was uh you know, he has the, the experience of being a literary, a literary crit- critic. So he has insight. And we've talked about some of those concepts that he mentions there. You can read more in my introduction. So, what was the. So, eventually, so meanwhile, the son was stuck with 400 copies. He really didn't know what to do with them all, he was not a distributor but somehow he he he, he came across the, shortly before the book was published there was a book there was a there was a jewish book review called blocks jewish book review something like that and he got in touch with them and they put it in their catalog which i think used to come out several times a year maybe and it it, it was it was published in this country for decades and it was the source for all Jewish books for many decades. So I think he was able to sell them that way, because I, I did, I did see letters where Pincher writes that he seems to have sold them all. So was, what was the reception afterwards? Yeah, it, it's hard to know. Though after Shmuel Nigger's article, lengthy review came out. Um, you know, it said you could buy a copy from the son, Pinyabir son that gave his contact information. Maybe people bought them that way. Maybe Block himself, the review, contacted him that way. In any case, the only other like major thing we see in the newspapers is a, there was a, a great Yiddish linguist called y- Yudel Mark. And he, in Yiddish Sprach, he wrote a very lengthy I think in 1942 he wrote a very lengthy linguistic analysis of Pinyar Bear's memoirs, which all the you know uh, those into Yiddish scholarship are familiar with.
0: Now what was the translation like work for you translating it and also the style that you did? you you kind of kept the dialect. That he spoke of Yiddish and in your translation of the words, the transliteration. So, if you can talk about that as well.
1: So, Pinhas Ber was a master storyteller, but he was not a writer. He was not a professional writer, and though the Yiddish, the original Yiddish, reads smoothly and it's enjoyable and it's gishmak, and anyone nowadays would be envious of having such a rich Yiddish today. Nonetheless. The writing style—it's—it's—it's—it's—it's it's, 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 it's not by a professional writer. Professional writer, it's very easy to translate. He's very clear, and Pignolet—you know—to read it, it comes naturally. But translating, you have to be very exacting, and it just—it's it's, just—it's just not professional. It's not real clear. I had to—you know—read passages many times to, like understand exactly what his he's getting at. so s- s- I thought it would get easier over time but it, it never did. I it's not like I got used to style it's just it ne- you know it just never did um, Also for example you know, we're talking about the Yiddish from a while ago. So even some basic words don't have the same meaning as today. For example, he uses the word broit. Broit means bread. Bread is bread. But it didn't quite mesh with the context. I looked into it, and I saw that in in the Ukraine, broit, the word broit was sometimes used to mean grain. Go figure. So every word, even simple words, had to be examined, thought into. For example, mistame. You know your word. You're familiar with the word mistame. Mistame, probably. It's a word in Loshen Kurdish, It's used in Yiddish. Yet the way he was using it did not mesh. And then I found some old Yiddish dictionaries, and I see an alternate translation of mistame is certainly the exact opposite. And then it all fell into place. But you have to look in context. When is he using it as probably? When is he using it as certainly? In any case, so, and then, you know, just figuring out, I don't know if you want me to elaborate on it, just figuring out the dates in his book is difficult. Um, He writes at the beginning, he's born in 1842, but when he goes to ask for a bracha, and Tzemach tzaddik tells him not to marry until he is twenty, and then he decides, with the brach of the three the rabbis, that he will he would only marry right after he turned nineteen. Well, it's very clear. He's born eighteen forty eight. Six years later. Now, this in previous generations. Before the computer age, before we became so focused on documents, you know, now you go to a doctor, before you even tell him a name, you give the birth date. So, but then people weren't focused like that. It didn't mean, it had very little meaning, ex- that exactness and that type of dates. It really did not matter. So... As people, there's been studies, and this is not just Jews, this is a whole variety of cultures. As people got older in their 70s, 80s, they got much older. So a person was 70, they might have thought they're late 70s. And so this is a phenomenon until the modern age. Now people don't really do that anymore. Um, or maybe in countries where they're, if they're not computerized or the like. So that That was certainly played a factor in in his recording his age is much earlier than it was um so but he, on that eighteen forty two date the making was six years older, he based a lot of other dates in fact in the first volume certainly i I think there's only one year that's right one one year that he has right every other one is off. Um, but, um,
0: yeah, if, uh, so really, yeah, a lot of your footnotes is clarifying the years, clarifying everything, pointing out historical. Oh, oh, um, so
1: this is what I wanted to say. So, but he, his memory is remarkable because you can go in his book. Once I worked out all the date problem from the age of five till he's in his thirties. um. You, you know, till he moves to Crimea, you can go from one yomtiv to another in perfect chronological order, and it works out. And certain events have been, uh, historical events have been, have certain outside sources have substantiated it. So his
0: his memory is outstanding. So let's just talk about the end of Book One and then Book Two. That's forthcoming. If you wanna. We we spoke about the end of book one, but I mean, we spoke about where it ends up. And now, where does book two? Just to tease a little bit, if you want to just mention for the listeners, what is book two going? Oh. But bo- well, book two of yours, book three of him, where it's going to oh, okay. continue. I'll on.
1: mention that in one second. I just want to address a question that you, I didn't address. You asked about his dialect.
0: Yes. Oh yes.
1: So, so regarding in Eastern Europe, there were three main dialects. Central, which is Central Yiddish, which is Polish and Hungarian, Um, Lithuanian, which the speak in the Litvish and in Yeshivayim, and then there's Ukrainian Yiddish, southeastern Yiddish, and and that's what Pinhas spoke. And and very few people speak that nowadays, that dialect. And Pinhas spoke a subdialect of that from that Khersoni, Gubernia Basarabia, people call it collo- colloquially Tote-Momolution, because Tate, meaning father, in that area is pronounced Tote. Mame is pronounced "mame." Mazel is Mosul. And so, anyway, so I tried to incorporate some, lo- give some local color to the transliteration by including some of this. Not in every case. So when I write the word nu, I don't write ni. When I write shul, I don't write a shil. Um, but I, I decide to give it some local color. And the glossary, which is in Volume 2, I give all the different pronunciations, modern in Hebrew, of each word. If it, if it was a Hebrew component of Yiddish, and, uh, and you know, the, the, the Ukrainian, Litvish, and the like, and, and the footnotes. I try I tried to make the book accessible to the layman and the scholar alike. So I do describe every aspect of Judaism, Yiddishkeit that he mentions, but I also have uh, you know uh, more scholarly footnotes as well. Regarding volume two, forthcoming. So this, as I said, Pinhas' book was in three parts plus an addendum to part three. The English translation is being tra- translated into two volumes, so Pinyber's volume one and two are in volume one, my volume one, and his three in the addendum are in volume two, which Hashem will be published in September,
0: and that's going to be the rest of everything. Yes. Okay, just uh, that's that's basically it. But I just maybe if you want to end off by uh, saying, as you said, you went with more academic press versus a, and by the way, it is published by Toro University Press, which is in conjunction with Academic Studies Press, and I'll put a link in the show's notes. But you went with more of an academic press than more of like your standard, quote unquote, from press. And so I want, what would you say to to the listener, the potential reader? Who do you think would enjoy the book? I think, anyone would, kind of what we're talking about, but who who do you, you know, what do you want to say to the potential reader here at the end of the podcast? Re-
1: yes, really anyone, anyone would enjoy it. Um, uh, that experience has shown that. You know, when people open it up, so many people just can't put it down. But um, so... It's such a compelling read. It's also, it's a lesson in Betachin, in the belief in Heshkocha Pratis. So, in his strive to be besimcha, he tells you how, how he does it. He, this is a person who lived in extremely trying times, yet often if he was sad, he would break out in song. And it would cheer him up, and it would cheer up those who were around him that say he was on a wagon, and when he was feeling very down. So it teaches you how Baal Betochen lived during that trying time. I, I would like to mention that perhaps, you know, the book, so, someone who had, has very set ideas of what Yiddishkeit is, For someone who thinks that life then was just like it is now, such a person might have a hard time with my book. But by the way, I I I said at the beginning that uh, you know the Orthodox Jewish publishers, you know, they wouldn't consider it. But then I submitted it to some regular university presses, meaning large university presses, and the answer I got was. We we cannot publish this. So I went to people in the know, and they told me the reason is because it show, although it shows some corruption, it shows no real scandal in the Orthodox Jewish world. Without that, they're not going to touch it. So then I was left, you know. Then I started. Turo, who I worked for, had already. True University Press, which didn't exist when I started uh, translating this, they had expressed an interest, and I went back to them, and they were wonderful to work with. And uh, didn't ask me to cut out anything. They've just been wonderful.
0: It's really a fantastic read, so I'm glad that it was published, and you know, it's $25, so it's really affordable as well for the paperback, so it's not, you know, super expensive. And, uh, it's really something that anyone really enjoys Jewish history, especially autobiography. Primary sources, as I've spoken about them a number of times, and as listeners that read a lot of such things are familiar with, diaries and autobiographies, they're really kind of a personal uh, recollection. Rather than just reading a history book, they're very, especially the, the oftentimes, they're interesting, more interesting to read, and there's there's just a lot of personal experience as you get in this one tenfold more than almost any other one. So, it's worth, it's, you know, well worth the read. I'll put a link in the show's notes to this. Also, Ramosh Maiman wrote a uh, review on the Swarm Chatter Substack, which I'll put a link to in the show's notes as well, if anyone wants to read that if you haven't read it. And so, uh, thank you, Ramosh for joining me to discuss Pinyar Bear, Pinchas Dov-Goldenstein, and uh, Volume 1 of the Shaychet.
1: Thank you so much. Nothing. Slaughter